Why are these legislators, these Republicans, getting in the way of saving lives uh, and getting out of this pandemic? And so that's the question for them. Good question. Hey, it's a business model. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today. I don't know if it's uh, the change of the time zone, the daylight saving time. By the way, I, I am firmly on record as saying we need to have daylight saving time all year around. I just want to reiterate that point because this is going back to standard time stuff. Hate it. <laughs> yes, it messes with everybody's brains. But a couple of uh, points. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. A couple of points I, I want to get to from over the weekend uh, that we didn't have time to cover on yesterday's broadcast with my guest Tom Hartman calling mass murder, calling for mass murder charges to be brought against Donald Trump for his disastrous, purposely disastrous, purposely incredibly deadly handling of the COVID pandemic, deadly to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dead Americans. If you missed that program, please feel free to download it for free at bradblog.com. But uh, so there's a couple of points I want to try to catch up with. But, you know, as I was working on the show today, I don't know if it was the fact that, you know, it was <clears throat> going back to standard time that has exhausted me or the fact that every five minutes news kept breaking, <laughs> literally forcing me to, you know, sometimes we have shows where I'll plan a whole show and the news will break. We'll have to change the whole show. I couldn't even do the show. I With five I minutes, I would start working on it. Something else would break. We go in another direction. Five minutes later, something else. I know. I thought it was supposed to be a bit easier. <laughs> Then during the Trump administration with everything was happening all at once and everything is still happening all at once, just maybe 5% less all at once. Does that make sense? Yeah, but no, <laughs> no. 
It's all all at once. Uh, anyway, before I get to some of that breaking news today, I, I don't want to let this one go. This was uh, from late Friday. I don't want to let this get away without actually noting it here briefly, at least for the record. You may have already heard it, but I want to make sure that you have. Via Washington Post, late on Friday night, the 17-year-old son of Virginia's Republican governor-elect, Glenn Youngkin, tried to cast a ballot in last Tuesday's gubernatorial election. He tried twice. That, despite being too young to vote at all and being told as much on each attempt, according to Fairfax County, Virginia officials, in a statement on Friday. The statement, which identified the teen as Youngkin's 17-year-old son, emphasized that he did not end up voting and... Uh, stated, interestingly, that he did not violate any state election laws. Really? Trying to trying twice to vote illegally is not illegal in Virginia? Okay. The, uh, the teen, who is a minor and has not been charged with a crime, so the Washington Post did not report his name, Youngkin's young kin, if you will. Uh, he apparently walked into the voting precinct inside the Great Falls Library on Tuesday. He presented his driver's license to election officials when he was asked for proof of identity. Uh, this, according to Jennifer Chanty, the precinct captain there, she said in an interview with The Post that she realized who the teen was when she looked at his ID. And upon seeing his age, she said she informed him that he must be at least 18 to be eligible to vote in Virginia. He was only 17. Under Virginia election laws, the only time 17-year-olds can vote is in a primary election if they will be 18 by the time of the general election. She said she did offer to register him to vote, however, for, however, for the next election. But Youngkin's son declined and he walked out. About 20 minutes later, he then returned, insisting this time that he be allowed to vote, saying that a friend who was also 17 had been allowed to cast a ballot. Chanty, a Democrat, said, quote, I told him, I don't know what occurred with your friend, but you're not registered to vote today. You're welcome <laughs> to register, but you will not be voting today. Now, a spokesman for Youngkin, a guy by the name of Devin O'Malley, issued a statement in response to all of this on Friday saying, quote, it's unfortunate that while Glenn, Glenn Youngkin, attempts to unite the Commonwealth around his positive message of better schools, safer streets, a lower cost of living and more jobs, his political opponents, mad that they suffered historic losses this year, are pitching opposition research on a 17-year-old kid who honestly misunderstood Virginia election law and simply asked polling officials if he was eligible to vote. That's all he did. That's very simple. Twice. He did it twice, by the way. One of the two times he insisted he should be able to vote Mr. O'Malley. Uh, O'Malley went on to say when he was in, when informed that he was not eligible to vote, he went to school. Actually, not true. He went away for 20 minutes, then he came back and insisted he should be allowed to vote. But it gets even weirder. Uh, Chanty said that the Youngkins are not even registered to vote 
at this particular precinct, making the teen's effort to cast a ballot there even more odd. She said, it's just weird. He was very insistent that he wanted to vote in this election, and I said, well, you're not old enough. The uh, head of Fairfax Elections Office said it does not appear that the teen violated any state election laws. Scott Konopasik said the man did not vote. He made no false statements. He did not disrupt voting. Based upon information available to me now, it appears that he committed no election offense as defined in Chapter 10 of the Elections Code. Now, the apparent uh, governor-elect... Glenn Youngkin, and I should note it was very it was a very close race. The current unofficial results show Youngkin up by just under two points over Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat. That's about 65,000 votes out of more than three million that were cast uh, in the election. Uh, despite that close margin, McAuliffe has yet to seek an audit or a recount of the hand-marked paper ballots that are now available, thank God, across the entire state of Virginia. Even though the apparent governor-elect, Youngkin, had emphasized, quote, election integrity as the centerpiece of his campaign to win the GOP nomination. So I assume he'll be in favor of an audit or a recount, right? Since as of now, only computers have tallied the ballots in Virginia. And yes, those computers can be hacked or programmed in error. We have no evidence that they were, but we don't know because only the computers have counted those votes. No people yet, to my knowledge. Youngkin had announced uh, the formation of an election integrity task force before the election of citizens who would work to ensure free and fair elections in Virginia. So certainly he'd be in favor of Terry McAuliffe asked for why one you, would think. Why are you laughing? And I yet, don't understand. And yet, will that include his own son? Youngkin has advocated for audits of election machines to ensure that the system is fair, even though Virginia already automatically audits its election machines, according to Washington Post, uh, if not the ballots, the actual ballots, to my knowledge, uh, but they automatically do so under state law. All I can say is good thing Youngkin's son wasn't black or brown, because if so, he, you know, they, they they've tossed folks into prison and even deported them to another country for much less than what Youngkin did, than Glenn Youngkin's son did here. You know, like voting when they had no idea that they were not allowed to because they had at one time been charged with a felony or they had been handed a registration form at the DMV. Even folks who have turned themselves in by trying to withdraw their vote after they learned later that they weren't supposed to be allowed to vote have been jailed for doing so, for trying to do the right, right thing. You may recall the, the, the story of, of Crystal Mason, We've covered uh, her story before, but just very quickly, Crystal Mason, she's a Texas mother of three. She cast a provisional ballot while she was on federal supervised release back in 2016. That's a preliminary period of freedom for individuals who have served their full time of incarceration in federal prison. She voted. She wasn't supposed to, but it was an honest mistake that will now cost her five years 
in prison. In November of 2016, Crystal Mason stood online in Tarrant County, Texas. That's Fort Worth. She gave her name and ID to the poll worker. He told her that she was not on the list of registered voters, but if she wanted, she could fill out a provisional ballot. He said that if I'm in the right place, my vote would count. If I'm not, it wouldn't, she recalled. She had lived in the same house for years. She didn't have any reason to think that she was at the incorrect polling location. But unbeknownst to her, Texas considered Crystal ineligible to vote because at the time she was on federal supervised release after serving almost three years in prison for tax fraud. No one ever told her that she was not allowed to vote until her supervised federal supervised release was over. Six months later, Crystal was approached by a police officer in the lobby of a building who asked her, are you Crystal Mason? The officer informed her that she had a warrant for her arrest for illegal voting. Her first response was there was certainly a mistake. She recalls saying, uh, no, ma'am, I did not vote illegally vote. I used my ID. But she was arrested that day and uh, she has been convicted to five years in prison. Her case, I believe, is currently on appeal. And yes, Crystal Mason is black and in Texas, which doesn't help. Two systems of justice, apparently, in this country, one for a black mother of three in Texas, another for the white 17 year old kid of governor elect in Virginia, a Republican governor elect in Virginia who pretended to be in favor of election integrity. Neither of them lied at the uh, voting booth. Both gave their IDs as requested by poll workers. Only one of them insisted that he be allowed to vote illegally. And yes, only the black mother in Texas is now facing five years in prison. Of course, that is one just one story. I could share dozens with you. We have, in fact, done so over the years. We've covered you know, this beat uh, and the outrages that have occurred uh, exactly like this and almost always, I should say always to, you know, minority uh, men and women in this country. Very rarely, if ever, to nice young white people. It's as clear as black and white. There you go. Uh, so different standards of justice when it comes to voting and when it comes to elections and, yes, pretty much everything else in this country. Which brings us back to the standards of justice for Donald Trump. And his criminal cronies who actually tried to steal an entire presidential election. Shamefully, at least to date, Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice seem to be doing absolutely nothing about it, as far as we can tell. Thankfully... The bipartisan House Select Committee in Congress does appear to have some different ideas about all of this. They are ramping up their attempt to seek justice of some sort for those who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Not the hundreds of low-level dupes who were conned into believing the election was stolen from them by Democrats, duped by Republicans, uh, but the top-level liars who both knew better and tried to steal the election anyway. The Department of Justice is going against these low-level uh, dupes who were suckered into attacking the Capitol. They don't seem to be going after the people who actually encourage them to do so. 
So we have some news on that front today. A federal judge has now shot down, for now, a request from former President Donald Trump to prevent the National Archives from releasing documents that were requested by the House Select, uh, Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Trump, you'll recall, filed a lawsuit last month trying to block the records from being released, records that have to do with what he and his White House did on and before January 6th. That case is still ongoing, but Trump tried to file an emergency motion late on Monday asking the judge, U.S. District Court judge for the District of Columbia, Tanya S. Chutkin, to grant a stay in the case pending appeal or an administrative injunction. Chutkin, however, quickly denied the request on Tuesday, calling the move premature. The judge explained that she has not even issued a ruling in this case yet and would only consider a motion for a stay after she reaches her actual final judgment. So, yeah. So the judge, so basically Trump is asking the judge to put a stay on her own ruling before she's made it? Correct. <laughs> okay. Now, it sort of makes sense in that the deadline for the release of these documents is Friday. And so uh, the, she's already heard the uh, the arguments, I guess, from uh, Team Trump. And she says she's going to make her decision expeditiously. She has not done so yet, however. And the deadline's coming up Friday. So I guess the Trump team thinks we better get a stay right now because no matter what it is she comes out with, we may not have time to apply for a stay before the Friday deadline. Sure. Makes sense? Yes. During uh, oral arguments earlier this month, apparently she seemed skeptical of Trump's request to block these documents in the 14-page filing the Trump counsel, Jesse Banal, filed on the former president's behalf. It says that the National Archives and Records Administration is expected to produce the records to the committee on Friday. Banal argued that this would happen, quote, before judicial review is complete and before Trump has had the opportunity to be fully and fairly heard. Trump sued the National Archives and the House Committee last month, arguing the lawmaker's subpoena for documents was invalid because the committee has no power of investigation, which is a novel notion for a House Select Committee, actually for any committee for that matter. That With they a have mandate no that says that they're supposed to investigate. investigate yeah. Yeah. And because uh, Trump has asserted executive privilege over those records, even though executive privilege is reserved for the actual executive, that being the president, which Donald Trump, I don't know if he has yet to notice, but he is no longer that. The uh, White House, you know, the actual president, uh, has rejected Trump's attempt to assert uh, executive privilege here. His uh, request is actually a better way to describe it because a former president can try to request that a sitting president exercise executive privilege to block the release of documents from a former president's White House. But whether the privilege is actually invoked, that's up to the current president, not the former one. The current one's Joe Biden. The former one is Donald Trump. Just in case we have any MAGA folks listening today, I feel I need to be clear about that. And, of course, as a former president, he has no special magical powers once out of office. Not for lack of trying. For sure. Uh, White House counsel Dana Remus previously said the documents in question that are being sought by the committee shed, quote, shed new uh, shed light on events that the White House 
uh, within the White House on and about January 6th and bear on the select committee's need to understand the facts underlying the most serious attack on the operations of the federal government since the Civil War. In the emergency request on Monday, Trump's lawyer uh, said that the case should be uh, decided only after a thorough but expeditious consideration pursuant to America's judicial review process. He said that if the judge refused to grant a preliminary injunction, Trump would promptly appeal because, of course, he will, because the point here is to delay as long as possible, go all the way up to Donald Trump's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court and hope for the best. Or, in the meantime, delay long enough that the House Select Committee is dissolved once a new Congress is in place after next year's midterm elections. Because, of course, you know, innocent people do file emergency appeals to make sure that the evidence that proves their innocence never gets seen. Yes, right. Yeah, if there's nothing to hide, why are you so uh, desperate to keep these documents from getting out? Now, earlier in the day on Monday, we mentioned this. It happened just before airtime on our previous show. The uh, January 6th committee issued subpoenas to six former Trump administration or campaign aides who supported Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, claiming that it was actually stolen from him somehow. Or another by Joe Biden and voting machine companies and China and Cuba and Venezuela and dead Hugo Chavez and all of those other totally plausible yet completely evidence free reasons. The uh, House Select Committee on Monday uh, issued those six uh, new subpoenas. Monday's round of subpoenas uh, began targeting top individuals from former President Trump's re-election campaign, who the panel say were involved in promoting the lie that the election was stolen in their actual effort to steal the election. Ironically enough, those six subpoenas on Monday were for Trump's 2020 campaign manager, Bill Stepien, his former senior advisor uh, to the campaign, Jason Miller, John Eastman, the attorney who wrote this uh, legal argument for how uh, Vice President Mike Pence could steal the election, could could not count the Electoral College votes on January 6th. Michael Flynn has also been subpoenaed. He's Trump's former national security advisor. He was found guilty of lying. He pled guilty of lying to federal investigators about his contacts with Russia and his uh, secret work as a foreign agent for Turkey, even as he was ser serving as national security advisor. He was eventually pardoned for all of this by Donald Trump just before Trump left office. He was involved in meetings about how the Trump campaign wanted to uh, push the lie that the election was stolen, even though they all knew that it was not. Uh, another woman, Angela McCallum, was uh, a national assistant to former President Trump's 2020 re-election campaign. She actually called officials in Georgia. She is on tape having done so. She told them that they should choose a new slate of electors that supported Donald Trump instead of Joe Biden. You know, the actual winner of Georgia. Bernie Carrick, the former New York City police chief and the pal to Rudy Giuliani. He served time in prison he was also pardoned by Trump. He participated in the uh, command center meetings at the Willard Hotel near the White House that were centered on overturning the election results, stealing the election 
from uh, December through the January insurrection. All six of those individuals are being asked to supply the committee with documents by November 23. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. And with depositions scheduled uh, spanning the last week of November into mid-December. So Merry Christmas, guys. The uh, Select Committee Chair, Benny Thompson, said in a statement announcing the new subpoenas that in the days before the January 6th attack, the former president's closest allies and advisors drove a campaign of misinformation about the election, planned ways to stop the count of the Electoral College votes. The Select Committee needs to know every detail, he said, about their efforts to overturn the election, including who they were talking to in the White House and in Congress what connections they had with rallies that escalated into a riot, who paid for it, etc., etc. Thompson said the select committee expects all of the witnesses to cooperate with our investigations and, yes, their lawful subpoenas. So that was the first round of subpoenas issued by the committee uh, following the uh, House asking, voting uh, to uh, refer criminal contempt charges against Trump ally Steve Bannon to the Department of Justice because Bannon defied those lawful congressional subpoenas, including orders to appear and provide testimony. We are still waiting for the DOJ to indicate whether prosecutors are actually going to indict Steve Bannon for having uh, committed criminal contempt against Congress. What's the holdup? We don't know. As we've noted, it only took about eight days for the DOJ to do uh, to bring similar charges against someone who was found in contempt of Congress. Eight days it took back in the 1980s for the DOJ to bring charges, to bring an indictment during the Reagan administration. What's the holdup now? We're going on uh, pushing two and a half weeks at this point. I don't know. It could happen any minute. I'd like to think that it will. I think you are somewhat, Desi, are somewhat more skeptical that well, it will. Well, you know, I do tend to be all. a bit more cynical about these kinds of things. And it really does seem like the Department of Justice is just sort of trying to lay low and be quiet and hope nobody notices. Hope nobody, I don't think that's going to work. I don't I think, think so either. Uh, I think we're going to notice. And I think, uh, frankly... Uh, at this point, I would be stunned, shocked, stunned if they didn't bring charges against Steve Bannon for this. I, I probably shouldn't be, but I think that they will. The question at this point is how long are they going to take? Now, uh, in the meantime, on Friday, former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who was key to the scheme to tell uh, uh, states at the at the uh, at the Department of Justice, this scheme to inform states that they should reconvene their legislatures to examine evidence-free claims of fraud in 2020. He was almost installed as the Attorney General by Trump, because Trump's acting Attorney General at the time wanted no part of this, uh, but for a threatened mutiny at the very top level of the DOJ that stopped all of this just before January 6th. Jeffrey Clark reportedly stonewalled the committee on Friday. He, I think, showed up to testify, but he didn't want to say anything to them, presumably invoking the Fifth Amendment. I don't know. It was behind closed doors. And now today we have a new round of subpoenas issued by the committee. They appear to be working up the food chain and they appear to be doing so quickly. I wish the same could be said for the DOJ, but at least at least for now, the House committee is doing so. Last week, Vice Chair Republican Liz Cheney said the panel had uh, 
held some 150 interviews in the 100 days since it has been convened. So, yes, they are working very quickly. What the holdup is for Merrick Garland, I don't know. But on Tuesday afternoon, again, shortly before air, House investigators issued subpoenas to 10 more former officials who worked for Donald Trump. The subpoenas, including demands for documents and testimony, from senior advisor Stephen Miller mm. and press secretary Kylie Kaylee never learned how to say her name <laughs> Kaylee Kylie McEnany. They uh, bring the uh, House panel tasked with investigating the insurrection now even closer inside of Trump's inner circle and yes, closer to Trump himself. You suppose Stephen Miller will show up and testify? I have a feeling that no. Turnover documents, maybe? No, nah, not so much. Uh, how about uh, McEnany? Will she? Now, that's a good question. That I don't know. I doubt it. And if she does, she'll probably turn over a pile of blank papers. <laughs> Mississippi's uh, uh, Congressman Benny Thompson, who chairs the uh, panel, said uh, we need to know precisely what role the former president and his aides played in efforts to stop the counting of the electoral votes. Uh, it is so far unclear if the panel will subpoena Donald Trump himself, though the committee's uh, leaders have said they have not ruled out anything. And I believe them. Why do I believe them? Well, because Liz Cheney is the vice chair of that committee. And when Republicans want justice, they get justice. And frankly, I think Liz Cheney really wants justice here. That's why waiting for this uh, Steve Bannon indictment is much more important than indicting Steve Bannon and seeing him go to prison for as much of as a year for defying uh, uh, these congressional subpoenas. What happens with Steve Bannon is going to tell you what will or should or could happen with Donald Trump as well as all of these other people that I mentioned. Uh, this They could have the same fate, but I think we're all waiting to see uh, how this is things are going to turn out for Steve Bannon because that tells us how it might turn out for, uh, for Donald Trump if and when, I would argue, he is subpoenaed by the, uh, by the committee. Yeah, that makes sense. So if the DOJ breaks the logjam on Steve Bannon, then that makes it more likely that they will also do the, what I presume will eventually be, criminal referrals for defying subpoenas for the other top-level Trump Each one cronies. of these, yeah. If they don't uh, c you know, comply with the lawful congressional subpoena, then they should be held in uh, contempt of Congress, referred to the DOJ, and charges brought against them. The other subpoenas uh, that were uh, put out on Tuesday include former National Security Advisor Keith Kellogg, Trump personal assistant Nicholas Luna. These are people really close to Donald Trump who know exactly what went on on January 6th. In the case uh, for uh, Miller, by the way, they say that he participated in efforts to spread uh, false information about voter fraud. And he was involved in the efforts to encourage state legislatures to change the outcome of the election. In, uh, in other words, to steal the election. Uh, McEnany uh, was present, apparently, at times with Trump as he watched the insurrection on January 6th and did nothing. Uh, the others uh, deposed here were uh, or subpoenaed here. A special assistant, Michael uh, Molly Michael, deputy assistant, Ben Williamson, deputy chief of staff, Christopher Liddell, personal director, 
John McEntee, Special Assistant Cassidy Hutchinson, and Justice Department official Kenneth Klukowski, a former senior counsel to Assistant Attorney General Jeff Clark. Yes, the guy who led the putsch with Trump inside the Justice Department and very nearly succeeded, which frankly would likely have been game over for the Republic had he succeeded, had those top-level DOJ officials Thankfully, uh, had they not pushed back by threatening to resign en masse if Clark was put in charge of the DOJ just prior to January 6th. So a lot of those folks, a lot of those names, they're people that we don't necessarily know, don't recognize their name, but they were inside. They were inside. They have a lot to say about what went on. And frankly, they have a lot to lose if they end up you know, defying a subpoena and being indicted for it and going to prison for it for a year, which I think they probably don't want to do. Not unlike Steve Bannon. Oh, he'll do it. He'll he'll be a hero. He'll raise, you know, millions of dollars <laughs> on it. These other people, I don't think so. We're keeping our eyes on that. All right, quick break. We are back with more of the uh, wherever we go today of the uh, breaking news and otherwise here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Take your vaccine, take your booster, whatever it takes. Keep yourself alive. You know, we haven't talked about, we, you know, we, we talked uh, with Tom Hartman yesterday about, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, being held accountable for the hundreds of thousands of deaths that occurred on his watch, as Tom argued, uh, purposely. And uh, I think well argued purposely when he went through all of the pop- publicly documented evidence that showed mm-hmm. how the Trump administration pivoted away from trying to contain the virus once they found out that, oh, mostly black and brown people are dying. So who cares? But what we haven't talked about recently on the show is the virus itself. And how's it going? Well, uh, it's not going well in North Dakota. North Dakota's Republican lawmaker, State Rep. Jeff Hoverson, Hoverson, he organized a rally on Monday to oppose COVID-19 vaccine mandates. But he announced on Sunday he would not be able to attend. Right? Yes, you guessed it. The story writes itself by now. Rep. Hoverson has covid He uh, posted on Facebook on Sunday that he was, quote, quarantining and each day is getting better. The Minot lawmaker said that he is taking the deworming drug ivermectin as a COVID-19 treatment and has not checked into a hospital. Hoverson is a pastor. He told the AP that he was diagnosed last week. He said, I'm feeling rough on Monday, but this ivermectin is keeping me out of the hospital, he insisted. Ivermectin, of course, is designed to fight parasitic infections, not to fight the coronavirus, but right-wing commentators 
and others have hoaxed their followers into taking all sorts of drugs and treatments that are not approved for COVID or some like monoclonal antibody treatments, uh, which, which has received emergency use authorization as a treatment. Meanwhile, they eschew drugs that are actually fully approved for COVID, like the vaccines. Remember how they used to be against the vaccines because they were only approved for an emergency use basis? Yeah. Uh, and now the monoclonal, monoclonal antibody treatment is only approved on an emergency use basis right now, and yet... They seem more than happy to take that. I don't get it. It's as if it doesn't make sense. It's almost as if it doesn't make sense at all. Like, it's completely illogical and based on absolutely nothing. The North Dakota legislature, meanwhile, uh, returned to Bismarck on Monday for a special session during which a bill to prevent vaccine mandates uh, is likely to gain approval. The House Majority Leader there said uh, Hoverson could vote in that special session. He'd just have to do so remotely. So the disinformation about COVID and about pretty much everything that the right now believes is seemingly unstoppable at this point. It would, it would be amusing, frankly, if it wasn't, at least in the case of the pandemic, so deadly. Or in the case of the 2020 election, so threatening to the stability of American democracy itself. Or in the case of global warming, so fatal to the future of humanity itself. Other than that, we'll leave that for Desi in her latest Green News report. <laughs> That's coming up shortly on the COVID front today and the wholly unnecessary deaths that it continues to cause at this point. The Kaiser Family Foundation tested eight false statements about COVID. Nearly 80% of Americans who were surveyed said that they had heard of at least one of these false statements and that they either believed it or unsure whether or not it is true. Most commonly, the report's authors wrote, six in 10 adults have heard that the government is exaggerating the number of COVID-19 deaths by counting deaths that are due to other factors, but counting them as coronavirus deaths. And they either believe this to be true, about 40 percent, or they were not sure if it was true or false, 22 percent. So that's six in 10 adults who think that could be true. One third of respondents believe or are unsure whether deaths due to COVID-19 uh, to the vaccine are being intentionally hidden by the government. And about three in 10 each believe or are unsure whether COVID-19 vaccines have been shown to cause infertility. 30 percent of Lord. more than 30 percent. Uh, believe that or whether ivermectin is safe and effective as a treatment for COVID-19. Again, about 30 percent believe that the researchers also found that between a fifth and a quarter of the public believe or are or are unsure whether the vaccines can give you COVID-19, whether they contain a microchip or that they can change your DNA. In each case, about a quarter of the public seems to believe that. Zero of those things are true, but that's a whole lot of people who believe otherwise. It's 80% of adult Americans who have yep. heard these things that are untrue, which shows the reach of social media. 
and right wing media. That's it, exactly what it shows, because the media diets uh, here for these people seem to be key. People's trusted news sources were correlated with their belief in COVID-19 misinformation, according to the authors. At least a third of those who trust information from CNN, MSNBC, Network News, NPR, local te- television news do not believe any of the eight false statements. But that's only a a third of those do not believe any of the false statements. That means two thirds of them do believe at least some of them. So while it's better than the numbers that I'll get to in a moment here, uh, even those sources are not doing a fantastic job of debunking the rubbish and, you know, informing their viewers Though uh, I should say, perhaps not surprisingly here, CNN describes this as a positive sign. It suggests that traditional sources are helping people separate real news from noise and nonsense. Well, that's true. At least they are in comparison to the other outlets, the far right outlets like Fox News and OAN and Newsmax, I guess. But if that's the bar you're comparing yourself to. I don't know. Seems like CNN and NPR and MSNBC and all the rest might want to do a better job. Kaiser found that nearly four in 10 of those who trust Fox News and One America News and nearly half of those who trust Newsmax say they believe or are unsure about at least half of those eight false statements. The Washington Post called it a sobering poll on the GOP's embrace of coronavirus information. Uh, The Post uh, followed up with Kaiser and concluded that the overall numbers, quote, obscure just how ripe the right is for this kind of misinformation, because in most cases, if you exclude Republicans who have not heard the claims and focus on just who is familiar with them, well, a vast majority of them actually believe the claims. So uh, in the meantime, all of this is causing the uh, country, uh, causing the number of covid deaths to become even redder as 2020 wound down. David Leonhardt reported in The New York Times, the per capita death toll in blue America versus red America was pretty close, was similar. It was only a few percentage points higher in counties where Donald Trump had won at least 60 percent of the vote just a few points higher than in counties where Joe Biden had crossed that threshold. Then the vaccines arrived. They proved so powerful and the partisan attitudes towards them so different that suddenly a gap in the covid death toll quickly emerged. And now the gap in covid's death toll between red and blue America has grown faster over the past month than at any previous point. In October, 25 out of every 100,000 residents of heavily Trump counties died from COVID. 25 out of every 100,000. That's more than three times higher than the rate in heavily Biden counties, where just about eight people per 100,000 had died. That's a huge gap. October was the fifth consecutive month that the percentage gap between the death rates in Trump counties versus Biden counties has widened. And yes, this gap is getting larger now each month. 
Charles Gaba, a Democratic health care analyst, has pointed out that the gap is also evident at finer gradations of political analysis. Counties, even counties where Trump received at least 70 percent of the vote, have an even higher average covid death toll than counties where Trump won just 60 percent of the vote. Wow. It's incredibly well correlated, the death rate from covid to the voting rate for Donald Trump. Uh, Gaba was writing about Leonhardt's article uh, at COVID last night, uh, on, on COVID last night at Daily Coast. Uh, he notes that Leonhardt was pointing to his data from mid-October, but now new cases are now running three times higher per capita in the reddest tenth of the country than in the bluest tenth. That's cases, infections. New deaths are now running almost six times higher per capita in the reddest portions of this country. This situation is a tragedy in which irrational fears about vaccine side effects have overwhelmed rational fears about a deadly virus. Leonhardt says it stems from disinformation promoted by right-wing media Outlets like Murdoch's Fox News, the Sinclair Broadcast Group, online sources that all prey on the distrust that results from stagnant living standards, which Leonhardt goes into separately. But finally, before we get to the GNR, uh, you know, we've told a lot of stories over the past year or two on this show about covid deniers and anti-vaxxers who end up hospitalized, regretting their choices to not get vaccinated and or, you know, end up dying in the bargain. Well, today I offer this one. Richard Solis developed multiple blood clots on his lungs after catching the virus this summer. And the staff at the Seattle hospital where where he was being treated told him that they were concerned one of those clots might move to his heart or to his brain. The 54-year-old was on a heart monitor, oxygen tank, and eventually on a ventilator. After being admitted to the hospital in late August, he spent 28 days at Harborview Medical Center, including two stints in the intensive care unit. Solis is an artist. He had, uh, he had opted against getting a coronavirus vaccine when they became widely available to anyone over the age of 16 earlier this year even as some 223 million people in the U.S. have now received at least one vaccine dose. Health experts stress that the vaccines are not only safe, but they also protect people from severe illness like that that had inflicted Richard Solis. Still, Solis, he was confused by conflicting information. He'd seen one thing in the news, he said, only to have it then negated by something he saw on social media or heard in the grocery store checkout line. He said you couldn't go anywhere without somebody having something to say about it. Vaccine skepticism has been fueled by misinformation shared online, the Post notes, and on right-wing media outlets like Fox and Newsmax and OAN. So Lee's recalled hearing several now debunked theories about the shots, including that, yes, that they contained microchips. They don't. So he put off getting immunized and then he started feeling sick in August. He initially brushed, brushed it off as a flu bug. Then the headache started. He said, I can't even explain to you the intensity of that headache. I've never experienced a headache like that before in my life. A fever then followed, then shortness of breath. 
And he realized, hey, this is not the flu, it's COVID. He was admitted to Harborview Medical Center on August 23. While there, Solis said he focused on beating the virus. His life, Solis told The Washington Post, was, quote, literally hanging on a thread. And now this is where the story is happily a bit different from some of those others that we've told over the past uh, many months. Once Solis was well enough to leave the hospital in September, he could not stop thinking about the staff. He said, they saved my life. In hindsight, hindsight, he said, I felt bad. And I knew in my heart, in my mind and my consciousness, that it all could have been avoided. He returned to Harborview Medical Center late last month but this time with a message for his doctors and others who had treated him during his stay. He was sorry. He said, I deeply regret not making the decision to get vaccinated. When he finally got better, he said his mind returned to the healthcare workers who cared for him. Opting against getting the vaccine, he said, quote, put fuel on the fire unnecessarily. I didn't do it deliberately, he said. That was the bad part. That was the part that really disturbed me quite a bit, he told the Post. He said, I did not know the proper thing to do. Solis is now uh, fully vaccinated. Uh, He was left with scarring on his lungs from his time with COVID, which causes him to become winded easily. He also still has trouble sleeping. He's urging those who are skeptical about the vaccine, as he was, to speak directly to their doctors. The doctors at Harborview Medical Center, who said they have uh, morale has been low since the uh, Delta variant spread like wildfire over the summer. They said that his apology and gratitude from Solis uh, for the care that he received was the kind of message that our staff needed to hear. Solis said, get the vaccine. Speak to your doctors. Don't me. Don't be misled, he said. Also, I would add, don't listen to media outlets who are hoping to play you for political purposes. Since you listen to the broadcast, hopefully that means you don't. But please, please help others who do not understand these facts, who aren't bad people but who are just confused by so much information. Treat them with kindness when you can. And hey, maybe you will save someone's life. And maybe in the bargain, we can save all of our lives. Which brings me to the Green News Report for exactly (laughs) that reason. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, Desi Doyen, your turn to uh, save some lives for a change. I'm exhausted. 
Alrighty. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. Infrastructure Week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy to say that. Bipartisan infrastructure bill passes Congress with key climate investments. Hopeful-ish news from UN Climate Summit in Glasgow. Plus... It's not just that we can't afford to go backward. We can't afford to stay where we are. Obama pushes world governments to do more faster. Good. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I can solve climate change in ten minutes. You ready? Stop having the conference in a fancy room in Glasgow and put the G20 summit inside of a California wildfire. They got two minutes. Let's wrap this thing up. Yep, that'll work. Sounds good to me. This is your Green News Report. Location, location, location. I'm the first person to ever say that. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know you got a lot of news coming out of Glasgow and Washington, D.C., but a story sort of sliding under the radar over the past few days. More fossil fuel deaths. A horrible story. This time in Sierra Leone. Yes, on Saturday in the capital of Freetown, officials say an oil tanker truck was ruptured in a traffic collision, and as people rushed in to collect the leaking fuel, it exploded, killing at least 99 people and injuring more than 100. Horrible. Here in the U.S., big news in the nation's capital as congressional Democrats passed the long-awaited bipartisan infrastructure bill. The more than $1 trillion bill is the biggest investment in our crumbling infrastructure in decades. Decades, providing hundreds of billions of dollars to build and repair roads and bridges, modernize rail and public transit, upgrade and strengthen the electric grid, expand broadband access, and upgrade water pipes. It also contains the largest investment in climate action ever by the United States. Which is not saying all that much. This is true, but still, $47 billion designated to help communities adapt and prepare for climate resilience against the costly impacts of worsening man-made climate change, extreme fires, floods, storms, droughts, and includes funding for home weatherization, capping abandoned oil and gas wells, a national electric vehicle charging network, and more. And some imaginary stuff about carbon capture technology. True. So there's that. But President Biden's Build Back Better Act, which addresses the prevention and mitigation side, is still in limbo, with more than $550 billion of fully paid-for climate investments to reduce U.S. carbon emissions. It would, if passed, put the U.S. on a path to cut emissions in half by 2030. But it is still being held up by conservative Democrats, but it might get a vote before Thanksgiving. Yes, of course, now the progressives have given away their leverage, unfortunately by passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill so Joe Manchin can have at it when it comes to the Build Back Better bill and all that climate stuff that he just don't like. At the UN Global Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, over the weekend, an estimated 30,000 people, led by youth climate activists, including Greta Thunberg, took to the streets in a massive march to pressure world leaders to do more to cut emissions. This week, negotiators are hammering out concrete enforcement mechanisms that will govern the Paris Climate Agreement going forward. Guidelines to ensure transparency, deadlines, and accountability, plus a goal to establish a framework for 
for a global carbon market to allow countries and companies to trade carbon credits. It's incredibly complex and must be designed very carefully to prevent fraud and abuse, but it could unlock as much as $1 trillion of investment in developing nations. Well, that would be good. And there is good news. Because of the plethora of major deals and emissions agreements announced so far, the International Energy Agency has recalculated its projections. If all countries follow through and achieve all targets on time, then the world would be on track to limit global heating to just 1.8 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's below the 2 degrees Celsius target under the Paris Agreement. But it's above the 1.5 degree target that scientists say is necessary to avoid certain planetary tipping points that are going to get us into big trouble. That is the bad news. But every tenth of a degree of avoided warming is critical. So this is really good news. Oh, look at you, Miss Optimism, all of a sudden. Finally, on Monday... Vote the issue. Vote like your life depends on it because it does. Former President Barack Obama urged young people to use their voice, their vote, and their purchasing power to drive action in his speech to negotiators and youth activists at the climate conference in Glasgow. And he tried to help convince the world that America is actually serious about addressing climate change for reals this time. (laughs) Obama didn't mention Trump by name, but he expressed regret for the climate science denial and obstruction of both Trump and the Republican Party that have cost the U.S. and humanity four critical years of action. There are times where I am doubtful that humanity can get its act together before it's too late. And yet, whenever I feel such despondency, I remind myself that cynicism is the recourse of cowards. You hear that, cowards? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we were too afraid to get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I'm a coward. Yes. <laughs> it's a miracle I dare breathe. Yes, I am a coward, which is code word for uh, cynicism. Cynical today, as Desi and I. And, and you're optimistic, so I don't know. We Well, like I always say, that, you know, cynicism doesn't get a whole lot done, and especially doomism gets nothing done. So in other words, we really don't have a choice. We have to keep fighting no matter what. Thank you for that optimistic note to take us out today. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us here on the Bradcast. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can always download them for free at bradblog.com. And hey, if you haven't stopped by bradblog.com slash donate lately, now's a perfect time. You know why? Because it's always a perfect time. Bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Till we see you here tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm a coward. Guess I'd best make myself clear.